Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano, and I'm here with Alistair Kent, who's a world leader in policy development and patient engagement for rare disease. He's part of a number of different groups nationally here in the UK, across Europe, as well as internationally, working to improve support for families and research in rare disease. Welcome, Alistair, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Patrick. I'm delighted to be here. Great. I was wondering if you could start by just telling us some of your story, what uh, caused you to have a passion for rare disease and, and get involved in this in the first place? It was a variety of, of reasons. I, I started my career uh, in the disability field uh, many years ago. And um, even at that time, uh, in a sense, the end uh, of disability uh, work was, was not a question. Nobody felt that disabled people should not have full human and civil rights and be able to participate in society to the fullest extent possible. The question was about means right. rather than ends. But in the genetics, in the rare disease field, um, we were approach, We were just at the beginning of an era where the end was not clear because yesterday's science fiction was potentially today's nature paper and right. tomorrow's clinical service improvements. So the big question was how can we capture the knowledge that was beginning to be generated uh, through advances in molecular genetics and use that for the benefit of patients and families living with intractable and unacceptable uh, long-term medical conditions that were in many cases life-limiting. And, and what, so what have been the main shifts that you've seen over the course of your career? I think um, it, the opportunity to understand what's going on uh, has been uh, absolutely astonishing in the way that it has advanced. Uh, I mean, 25, 30 years ago, clinical genetics was an obscure corner of the health right. service, populated by a, a very small number of highly intelligent uh, and research-orientated clinicians. And although it's a caricature, it was kind of seen as the place that paediatricians sent the families to that they didn't understand and right. couldn't do anything for. And clinical genetics in some cases was able to give a diagnosis, but in many cases was not. But there was that expectation that by contributing samples to uh, research, that families would be able to advance knowledge. And that family professional partnership, which was, I think, a very strong element in the early days of, of genetic medicine, um, actually laid the basis for much of the progress that we've seen uh, in the 25 or so years since that. Yeah, and, and I, so it reminds me of there's a meeting in London every year um, called the Dysmorphology Meeting where a, a group of clinical geneticists get together and still discuss these most challenging cases. And, yeah. and, and back in, you know, back when this meeting was beginning, it was about looking at pictures and trying to actually look from the face or from other features of the body what's going on but today there's a huge infusion of genetics into it where you have not just the you know the physical features but also what information is is coming or hasn't or you know what what isn't in the genetic test yeah yes that's absolutely right and even in terms of looking at patterns pattern recognition which of course is what right. dysmorphology is we're getting uh 
advances in technology that will allow machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence to work with the dysmorphologist to uh, improve the, the likelihood of an accurate diagnosis from physical features. Right. So, so on the topic of accurate diagnosis, I know you've been part of the 100,000 Genomes project here yeah. in the UK run by Genomics England. Would you mind just for people who aren't aware, describing that project. I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but in case it's someone's first episode, what is the goal of the project and, and where is it today? Yep. Well, the 100,000 Genomes Project was uh, initiated by, by David Cameron when he was uh, Prime Minister. Uh, and he set the ambitious goal uh, of uh, sequencing uh, 100,000 whole genomes in the field of rare diseases and cancer uh, in five years. And at the time, it was an, a hugely ambitious it goal. Impossible, it yeah. seemed impossible. We didn't have the technology. We didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the people right. to do it. But um, thanks to the sort of spirit, of, it was a kind of can-do spirit. Right. We, there was a large amount of money being offered by the NIHR uh, to make this happen. And... Although some people felt, well, this isn't perhaps the right way to go about doing it, this was what was on offer, and you shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. So you've got a coming together of scientists, clinicians, partnering with, with industry, with companies like Illumina, to try and make it happen. And in the first instance, obviously, it, it, it started out slowly. They, there were things that needed to be done in order to make the sequencing technically possible. For example, right. uh, cancer surgeons had to uh, stop taking samples and fixing them in formalin. Them in you, formalin just, right. yeah. you know, they had to be turned to fresh frozen samples. And right. so getting changes in Change clinical behavior, practice, right. changes in organizational uh, methods and so on took time. But gradually that sort of built up and the expertise uh, was, uh, was generated. The facilities, you know, the, the analysis centre at, uh, at Hingston, at the Sanger Centre, um, you know, all those bits came together. And uh, by the time the end of the, the five-year period I was coming, the, uh, as it were, diagnosis rate, the hit rate for diagnosis um, for rare diseases was in the order of about 30%. Right. And because the samples are continuously re-evaluated uh, as new information comes to light, then that percentage can only increase as we go on. And that makes a huge difference to, to, to families uh, because most of the those coming forward uh, to volunteer, to uh, donate samples... Um, without the 100,000 genomes, would have been extremely unlikely to receive a, a, an accurate diagnosis of, of the problem, possibly even ever. Right, and I think the other thing to note about this 30% figure is is the vast majority of those participants had already been subjected to a lot of different types of testing. This is the last resort. In Absolutely, yes, yes. I mean, the... Um, uh, Effectively, you didn't get on to the right, 100,000 genomes unless else. you'd reached that point. With, um, and that's right and proper, because if there is a, 
a conventional, clinically valid diagnostic tool that works for you, then you should have access to that quickly. Right. Um, the 100,000 genomes was research, is right. research. So the, uh, if you like, the validity of the information that emerges needs to be proven before it can be used to actually make, help make, make decisions, cl clinical right. decisions or management decisions um, for individuals and, and families. And I, I also think a really unique part of this project has been the level of patient involvement yeah. from the very beginning. And I know that's something you work a lot on. Can you speak a little bit about how, how has the 100,000 Genomes Project been different than, than many of the projects that come before it? Yeah, there's an awful lot of... Um, rhetoric about patient engagement you know it's it's clearly seen as as a good thing to do in heavy inverted commas yeah. and indeed if if you were to turn around and say well actually uh, you know i'm a scientist what, what, what can patients tell me right. you know i i only deal with things at the level of base pairs there's nothing that a patient can add there people would look at you and say you know i think you've lost <laughs> I think the you plot need to reevaluate yes this. because it is clear that the insights that patients and families can bring to the understanding of the condition uh, can help to elucidate the, the data, turn data into information, turn information into knowledge, turn knowledge into action that will change the lives of uh, those affected ultimately. Now, you know, it's, it's not uh, an immediate process, but what the 100,000 Genomes uh, program said right from the start was that this is not a kind of helicopter model where, you know, we scientists, we clinicians, drop we technicians in, yeah. drop in, scoop up the samples and disappear to our ivory tower in, in, in the middle of the Cambridgeshire countryside. This is a partnership. And that partnership was about how can we build the knowledge that is going to make clinical service improvements in the NHS and elsewhere in the world, uh, a real possibility uh, sustainably and within an acceptable time frame. So by engaging with patients, uh, by looking at the, the recruitment procedures, right. the information that was provided, the support they were given, the opportunities for patients and family members to participate in real decision-making uh, about the future direction, about who should be allowed to access the, the data once it was generated yeah. and under what circumstances, um, really meant that there was, I think, uh, you know, a, a degree of cohesion between the different stakeholders that um, was certainly... Um, more uncommon in other areas of research than I would have liked to have seen it. So on this point about data access, I, I think it'd be great to go into more detail around this because that has been an area where this particular project has been incredibly careful yeah. about making sure that everything is done by the book, that data is not being shuttled around the internet without anyone knowing what's yeah. going on. Can you speak a little bit about you know, what, what is, what's the best practice or what's the, yeah. you know, been yeah. done in this area? I think one of the things that emerged um, 
in the early days of the 100,000 genomes, and indeed in some of its predecessor projects, like uh, DDD, Diagnosing Developmental uh, Delay, uh, was the fact that um, patients and families are incredibly willing to share their information with people who have, as it were, a legitimate need to know. They don't want to see it squirted around the internet and used for advertising yeah plastered all over facebook and and all the rest of it so that willingness to share is based on uh, a degree of trust right Uh, and i think hundred thousand genomes right from the start was very aware of the need to maintain that trust it takes a long time to build trust and you can fritter it away in a second right. by, 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 by carelessness or, 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 or lack of thought. So in trying to maximize the opportunity to add value from, th- through the sequencing, uh, it was very important that, A, that patients were able to, understood uh, the consent process that they were embarking upon and realized that they actually did have a degree of control over the the uses to which their data was put. You know, it was a research project, um, but they could opt out, but they could only opt out of future applications. They couldn't change the past and have their, you know, if their data had been used, it had been used, right. but it had been used in an anonymized fashion, so there was no personal identification yeah. possible. So the, first of all, there was the question of consent and people's understanding of that consent, but also there was uh, built into the, the system were, was the voice of patients, patient representatives uh, on the ethical advisory committee, which oversaw the, the running Uh, of the 100,000 genomes from an ethical point of view and which was reported directly to the Board of Management uh, for Genomics England. There were patient representatives on the Access Review Committee and that committee sort of scrutinised the uh, proposals coming forward uh, for use of the, 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 the data as it was generated and said yes or no, yes, this is an appropriate use, this is within the the terms of reference of the original consent, or no, it's not. This is a sensible use of a finite resource, or this is actually a bit of a punt in the dark and probably needs further work before we'll consider it, Uh, and so on. So so at each stage of the process, the voice of the the end user, the patient, uh, was there at the table in a in a full voting capacity. They weren't observers. Right. They were members. It wasn't tokenism. It's yeah. really uh, yeah. full involvement. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, was remar- it is remarkable how, uh, how engaged and how informed uh, people who might have, at first glance, been thought perhaps not to have the insight of the experience right. to add to the dimension. That's completely not the case. Yeah. The patient voice, the family voice... Uh, has significantly shaped, as it were, the tone, in inverted commas, of the decision-making process. Um, And uh, as a result, I think certainly in the rare disease community, there is uh, a feeling that it has been 
a, a proper partnership program. And seeing that now as the, the, the 100,000 genomes data collection phase, as it were, comes to an end and we shift to a genomic medicine service in the NHS, you know, that, uh, as it were, spirit of partnership and the recognition that clinical management and research go hand, hand in hand, hand. Right. you know, they, they are two sides of the same coin in, in many respects, um, is actually, I think, an important um, development that bodes well for the future of, of genomics research in, in the NHS in, in, in the UK. Right. I think the, the idea that you can, you no longer have to wait a decade to go from discovery or diagnosis to a clinical trial or to a research project means yep. hopefully that the the pace of research in these underserved areas can can increase right yeah 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 and of course now that um we can do whole genome sequencing affordably i mean it, it's the the sequencing is is not it's a significant actually probably cost. a quarter or a third of the cost when you build in personnel and yeah. interpretation yeah. and yeah yeah uh, but that cheapness relative cheapness makes the possibility of doing things at scale feasible and of course it's it's only by generating huge volumes of data that you begin to see patterns and you begin to be able to draw inf inferences that will stand up to scrutiny and ultimately become clinically useful as part of a, a, of a medical care program. And now my understanding is the ambition is to now set a new goal of 5 million genomes, yeah. not, not all whole genomes necessarily, but in rare disease specifically there there's going to be guaranteed whole genome sequencing for any child with an undiagnosed pediatric disorder. So, yeah. so from this perspective, it seems like the, the project has been an incredible success. Otherwise, we wouldn't be building on top of it. Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, obviously, if there is, as it were, a recognized diagnostic test for uh, a suspected condition, then that will be done first. Yeah. Um, but the, the offer of whole genome sequencing for any child uh, without an obvious diagnosis, I think, will be hugely significant for families, and, and it's something that uh, we should welcome. Amazing. It, it, yeah, and, and going back to the start of this conversation, if you had said to me 25, 30 years ago, this is what we're going to do, you know, I'd have laughed at you. Yeah. This was this was beyond the wildest imagination of even the most forward-thinking enthusiast. Right. You could not have conceived that this would be a, a realistic possibility in such a short time frame. Right, and and if you uh, we can we can post a maybe a picture of this graph, but the the graph that everyone uses all the time of the price of genome sequencing from yeah. 2000 to the present day it was 100 million dollars for a genome in 2001 even in 2006 or 2005 2006 yeah. it was tens of thousands of, of dollars per mm. genome so the idea of doing a hundred thousand or a million or five yeah. million like you say was just there's not enough money in the country to do yeah. it right but yeah. the the price at the scale that the hundred thousand genomes project and, and now the genomic medicine mm. service is doing it it's it's hundreds of dollars for a whole genome yeah. not yeah. Uh, no longer thousands and it's not just 
the price, although obviously the fact that the price has fallen through the floor is significant. The technology that now delivers that as a matter right. of routine was similarly unimaginable 25 or 30 years right. ago. You could not conceive. You know, at that point, uh, you know, our opportunity to um, s- sequence a gene uh, was a hugely laborious process. Right. You know, it was basically uh, using technology that had been familiar right. to scientists for a long time. Bacterial, but, artificial yes, chromosomes that, and all yeast that chromosomes of, yeah. and things, right. Yeah, and, and the idea that you could do what we can do now, I mean, people would have laughed at you. Right. It's just not possible. I'd like, I'd like to ask a, a little more about this data access and the access review yeah. piece of, of the project, because it seems to me that there are now, I think, 25 different national genomics programs. There's there's one in Ireland, there's one in Singapore, there's been one in Estonia for a long time, there's a big one in the U.S. The Some of them have come under fire. In, in Ireland, for example, there's a, there's a huge debate raging right now of what is the appropriate involvement of industry money into these national programs but it seems to me like the genomics england and the hundred thousand genomes has has threaded this in terms of public opinion and how it's done really well and that there haven't been any huge concerns about the way data is being handled is what is it actually that that this program has done right that that has enabled it to kind of get the industry involvement that means you can bring medicines to market better but also not have patients or other people concerned that you know you're you're making data available in the wrong way or selling you know selling access to a national treasure or or something like that yeah i think um i think what has been clear from the start with the 100,000 genomes is that this is you know, a, a public sector, an NHS-related right. piece of work. You know, it's, although obviously private sector organisations have played a significant part, it has been clear from the outset that uh, private sector organisations will only be able to use the data under carefully controlled situations and for particular applications and also that they won't be allowed as it were to take the data away right you know it's it i think the um the model that um mark caulfield came up with right at the start that this is this is a reading library not a lending library is a is a brilliant metaphor so you can go in you can look at it you can manipulate it within the context of a secure repository you can take the knowledge that you've generated out and do right. stuff with it but you can't actually privatize the data right. and and own it it belongs uh, ultimately to, to to the person to whom it, it from whom it was it was collected and it's sim- there was a similar concern um a few years ago with a, a project uh, funded by the Wellcome Trust called the HapMap Project, right. which was looking at um, uh, population genotypes in, in discrete populations around the world. And there again, there was the, 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 the fear that uh, industry would come in, would take the data out of a public database, manipulate it a bit, and 
effectively slap a patent right. on it. So the Wellcome Trust, which obviously has been hugely important and engaged with, with 100,000 genomes alongside NHS and yeah. NIHR and so on, uh, developed a model to prevent that from happening. But I think it was that early thinking that was put in that alerted um, Genomics England to the importance of creating a model that sustained right. trust and prevented um, undue exploitation of knowledge for, for private gain at the expense of those from whom the data originated and for whom the data was ultimately intended to benefit. Yeah, I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about this later as well in the in the context of pricing around some of the new treatments for rare yeah. disease, because hand in hand with improved research and diagnostic comes new therapies, but the sheer cost and the amount of time that it takes to bring these new treatments to market means that often the, the price tags are shocking. Um, so maybe we can we can pick up on that later. I, I just wanted to ask besides the 100,000 genomes that we've talked a lot about that, but you've also been a part of the leadership for Genetic Alliance. Um, and I think you're, you, you've just changed to a new role there now, but would you mind telling us a little bit about Genetic Alliance and, and what you did there to work on kind of bringing patients again to the forefront of research? Yeah, yeah. well, Genetic Alliance UK um, is the UK umbrella group for Patients and uh, patient and family support groups for those with rare and, and genetic diseases. Um, it was founded um, in 1990. It was registered as a charity, uh, and it came about uh, because uh, people um, working in condition-specific patient organisations um, came together. Uh, in order to um, lobby to support the uh, adoption of the first Human Fertilization Embryology Act. Right. Uh, in that act, there was provision for human embryo research under tightly defined circumstances and with full ethical uh, control. Um, the act, or the bill as it was then, uh, came under a sustained attack from some of the so-called pro-life groups. Right. Um, and representatives of patient organizations uh, felt that the opportunity to do ethical research on human embryos uh, was an important tool for advancing understanding into what were then, and in many cases today still are, incurable lethal diseases of right. childhood. So they formed uh, what was then called the Genetic Interest Group as a way of coordinating the, the lobbying, the advocacy to support the bill. Uh, initially, just as a single-issue campaign, right. uh, they were successful. The bill became the law. Uh, the Act enabled the setting up of the Human Fertilization Embryology Authority. And those people um, basically had a well, that was fun. What should we do now? <laughs> What's the next know, problem gosh, that yeah. really works. You know, <laughs> it was clear that um, they, by working together, you could right. create a a critical mass a that movement, made a problem yeah. visible. You know, many of the conditions that uh, the organisations that are part of Genetic Alliance UK, as it's now called, um, have you know maybe a dozen, maybe fewer affected families across the whole of the UK. 
Uh, and if you go to the Secretary of State for Health and say, you know, what are you going to do today about people with XYZ disorder? The first question right. is always, going, well, how many are we talking about? Yeah. Oh, right. OK, well. A hundred in the country? Yeah. Less <laughs> than that. Yeah. OK, fine. Well, no, that's a great tragedy and I'm very sorry right. for you, but I'm not going to do much for yeah. you. However, if you say, right, there are uh, 6,000, 8,000 rare conditions, that affects uh, you know, thousands of children. If right. you go to any pediatric ward in any district hospital, you'll see that half the beds are, there, are occupied with children who are there because of the consequences of a genetic disease. Half of all childhood deaths, more or less, result from genetic diseases in this country thousands of children a year you know the other heart you know the, the other cause of severe childhood in, ill health is impact with hard objects at high speed right but you know then it becomes a visible pr problem you have a yeah. critical mass you look at the expenditure from the nhs on those that group of children right and you'll find although in absolute terms, the numbers are small. In terms of the the bandwidth of NHS resource that they use up, it is very significant. Right. And it makes sense to try and make sure that the money you are spending is achieving the best possible clinical outputs and the greatest possible improvements in the life of children and families who are affected. Yep. So the rationale behind uh, the work of Genetic Alliance UK was to try and bring that uh, policy focus to, uh, to politicians, to industry, uh, to the academic and the clinical community in a way that they could see and recognise. You know, it's, it, it, it's going uh, along the route of uh, moving from anecdote to a trend to evidence to action right you know by finding the commonalities by making the voice of the patient the family heard in a way that people can understand people can listen to people can see what can be done you know it's no use going to the secretary of state or the CEO of a major pharmaceutical company or whatever, and saying, I'm suffering, something must be done. Because the Secretary of State, the CEO, will say, millions of people are suffering. Tell me what you want me to do, right. and I'll consider it. Tell me the difference it will make, and I'll see what I can do. You know, you have to... Um, present your the full package, right? Or, yeah. or your your thoughts in a way that people can understand what you're what you're seeking, and what Genetic Alliance UK strove to do, still strives to do, is to make sure that the voice of those uh, ultimately affected by by rare and genetic conditions is heard and respected because it is seen to be, if you like, a reasonable voice, a fair voice, and right. an informed voice. Right, so, so how, do you, how do you go about doing that? Is it a combination of raising awareness, lobbying directly to governments, you know, in, in the UK, Europe, or further afield? Or what are the, yeah. you know, what are the, I'm sure it's a multi-pronged strategy. 
Yeah, yes. I mean, obviously, um, you plan your strategy to some extent on a case-by-case basis. Um, We were uh, very involved, uh, have been very involved in uh, a number of uh, European level initiatives, uh, the uh, bringing about the the introduction of the orphan medicinal products regulations, uh, the advanced ther- uh, uh, advanced therapy medicinal products regulations, which uh, are used to determine the process by which new drugs, new interventions are brought to the market, um, with the confidence of patients that they are. They do what they say on the tin, and right. that what they say on the tin actually relates to the situation that patients and families find themselves in. Um, it, we were very involved in the uh, work uh, that brought about the development of uh, ERNs, expert reference networks, right. uh, because no matter, even in the bigger nation states of Europe, there is insufficient expertise to provide a high-quality service to all patients affected by any rare disease. So it's one of the um, key ways in which being part of the European Union has added value to enable that expertise to be shared around uh, the whole of the European Union, supporting local clinicians to build up their own expertise, and where specialist expertise or resources are needed enabling patients and families to travel to that center of expertise wherever it is uh, within the European Union. Right so are the, are the ERNs just because um, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with them but not an expert are, are they physical locations or are they virtual sort of supranational networks of experts across the EU? Uh, it's, it's a bit of both. Uh, there are um, there are 24 ERNs uh, clustering rare diseases, so you know, rare neurological, rare kidney diseases, and so on. Epilepsy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the idea is that you have uh, centres of expertise which meet certain criteria. You know, you you, you yeah. can't self-declare as a. <laughs> declare you know, as a I'm an expert. I, yeah. I I work in a centre, therefore it's a centre of expertise. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can't self-declare. You have to meet uh, eligibility criteria, which you know you have to be research active. You have to have a certain critical mass of patients. You have to, right. you know, demonstrate that you are, you know, World what you're leading, talking about. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that uh, these uh, approved centers of excellence, centers of expertise, uh, are networked together across the European Union to share existing good practice and also to build better practice in, right. in the future um, and to stimulate research. So, you know, they are physical centers, uh, but they are also networks right. uh, that, that transcend national boundaries. The intention is that it will be the knowledge and the expertise that travels wherever possible, but that it is also, if, if you need right. something specific that can't be provided... It can also be the family that travels. Yeah, the yeah. family can travel to the, you know, to, to, to the centre. Um, and the UK plays 
played a, a major part in them. You know, disproportionately, our expertise in the UK uh, was was greater than that of of other right. member states, because even the, the large ones like France or Germany or yeah. whatever. Um, and indeed, if we do leave the European Union uh, at the end of October uh, without a deal, I think one of the great losses both to UK patients and to European patients right. will be the loss of engagement from UK expertise in building best practice uh, for patients and families. Yeah, I mean, we it seems like patients with rare disorders are likely to suffer the most or or at least disproportionately from from a, a Brexit or an, a no deal Brexit mm. where there's no plan in place because if you mm. if you have 20 people in the UK <clears throat> or five people in the UK then you know there's yeah. there's no hope without banding together across Europe or, yeah. or hopefully internationally yes yeah I, I have to say I hope you're wrong but I fear you're right right uh, and that would be a great shame I mean it, 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 it for for patients and families um, pan-European collaboration has made pr more progress possible more quickly than would have been the case had we simply worked on our own as separate, as separate nations. One of the other, I think, quite transformative things in the last decade, both in, in the US and in Europe, has been the orphan drug legislation. Would, yeah. would you mind explaining a little bit how that came about and, and what that means for patients that have rare conditions that fall under these categories as well as the the research in this area yeah yeah well as you know um it's the private sector that that makes drugs and uh in order to sustain uh innovation in order to to uh, continue producing novel therapies for unmet medical needs there needs to be uh, the opportunity for a return on the investment whether it's uh, dividends to shareholders or payback to venture capitalists or whatever now it it had been clear for a long time uh, in the uh, in in the US uh, in the 1980s they introduced the orphan drug act to stimulate interest uh, in uh, the opportunity of developing drugs that would not otherwise be commercially viable right. because the patient population was too small, the cost of development was was too high, uh, and the the resulting price per patient of the therapy would, would be astronomical. Right. So in the U.S., they introduced the Orphan Drugs Act, which introduced a number of incentives, um, and that clearly worked. Um, the, it, it, it stimulated uh, an upsurge of uh, interest and, and investment and uh, produced a, a number of innovative therapies that undoubtedly would not otherwise have, right. have come to market. The European Union was um, behind the curve on this. Um, and in the, the 1990s, it was, well, and, and earlier than that, it was clear that there was very little interest in developing interventions for small patient populations. Right. Uh, but there was concerted advocacy, lobbying uh, by patients, by, by industry, um, and by uh, some academics and clinicians to have a, a, a matching uh, regime, right. shall we say, uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Um, 
And uh, the European uh, Parliament uh, and the European Commission uh, was persuaded that this was a good idea. So uh, the Commission set about developing a, a, a set of, uh, of regulations, the Orphan Medicinal Products Regulations, that would provide broadly comparable incentives for R&D on, on this side of the Atlantic to those that existed on, on the other side of the Atlantic. So, so it, for example, gave 10 years of market exclusivity if you got a successful product, which meant that nobody could bring a similar product for the same indication to the market whilst you had that right. exclusivity. It gave exemption from fees charged by the medicines agency for considering... Um, your proposal, your dossier. Uh, it provided access to protocol assistance and scientific advice. So you could work out what evidence you exactly needed to generate needed, right. in order, to, um, in order to, to satisfy the regulators that your product was safe and effective and you could produce it to an acceptable standard. Um, and it meant, and, and you had to demonstrate that it was actually, as it were, a clear identifiable condition that you were seeking to to uh, address not um, an artificially defined subset of a more common condition so the regulations were adopted uh, remarkably quickly for the the European Union uh, and um, uh, they became law in 2000 and because it was a regulation, it applied immediately across the whole of the European right. Union. It wasn't a, a directive that right. needed to be adopted into national law. And since then, we have seen you know, sustained interest in uh, companies uh, coming forward, seeking orphan designation in order that they can get the support to take their, take their idea forward. Uh, in a way that is most likely to be successful. And I think it's interesting here, because I think one of the... I, I was one of the... Uh, the Orphan Medicine Products Committee was the first Euro European Medicines Agency scientific committee to have patient members, full members, right. uh, on, uh, along, alongside the um, usual representatives of the national competent authorities, of the commission, uh, of the agency, and so on. And I was one of those uh, first three members. Uh, and I think one of the things that we managed to do was, if you like, to change the tone of the committee. Um, the final licensing committee um, is um, the CHMP, the Committee for Human Medicinal Products. And they are, the, if you like, the guarantors of probity. They want to make sure that you have done your research right. properly, that you have asked the questions you should have, have asked, and that you're telling everything that you know that is relevant. So, um, you know, they take a, a tough, uh, suspicious, conservative with a small right. C approach. Now, that was what the regulator, the members of the uh, national competent authorities, that was the approach they were used to. Uh, but one of the things I think we as patient representatives were able to do was to say, hang on, you know, there's plenty, of, it's difficult enough right. to do the research uh, and to prove that you, you know, you've got a good scientific rationale that will deliver health gain. 
you know, if you put the hurdle too high at right. the start, then you're actually going to frustrate the intention of the legislation. Right. You know, the, the, the aim of the, the Committee for Orphan Medicinal Products, the COMP, should be to see if the idea is a good one. Is there a scientific rationale? And is it sensible, the approach that is suggested to right. testing it out? So if the idea has got legs, we should be helping it to walk. Give it a try, yeah. Yeah, we shouldn't be aiming to cut the legs out from under it before it gets started. Right. And I think that has been a, a, um, an important uh, way in which patient input has directly, directly changed, changed yeah. the process uh, and resulted in, I think, a very successful piece of legislation uh, continuing to generate interest and investment and encourage uh, companies to get involved in developing innovative therapies for rare, small populations with rare diseases. Right. It's, I mentioned this earlier, the some of the questions around price. So in, in especially in the last five years or so, there have been a number of amazing transformative therapies, the CAR-T therapies in cancer. Um, recently, spinal. there's new therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. There have been a quite, quite a lot of discussion here in the UK around the cystic fibrosis yeah. drugs, for example. What, what, can you explain the, the challenge and the, and the problem a little bit and, and maybe how you see as a, a way, what is the solution for a million dollar drug that actually cures a you know, devastating condition that might actually cost much more than a million dollars to the NHS over the life of a patient, but it's got such a high you know, sticker price to start with? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to look at why things have a, some, some interventions have a high price. I mean, in many cases, a high price may, may be a fair price. Right. But obviously, one wouldn't support um, efforts by, by companies, as it were, to gouge them right. the, the price. Right, uh, or something like that. Yeah, to, to, to uh, deliver, a, um, you know, a, the maximum possible short-term gain right. uh, and hang the consequences, uh, as it were. I, I, it's very difficult um, for a company. I mean, a... a a large multinational pharma company will have a very different set of financial drivers from a, a, a small startup burning its initial tranche of right. VC funding uh, in the desperate hope to get to the point where, you know, you can get more money or, or be, become part <laughs> of, of, of something bigger. Um, so, uh, you know, it's difficult for companies uh, to think beyond their own uh, as it were, immediate strategic objectives, but I think what we what we have to do is um, is to try and find new ways of perhaps of risk sharing, right. new ways of rewarding um, innovation that uh, that are sustainable. You know, it, it, we we see in in the NHS the. Um, uh, the emergence of, of market access schemes where payment or sustained payment is dependent on continued proof of progress, continued of, progress, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and that's one way of doing it, you know, where, where you, you, the company, the NHS, uh, 
agree a process for developing the information that will allow for the determination of the added value that comes right. from utilizing the, 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 the therapy. But those, um, those are expensive to operate. Right. They're time consuming and they, are, they, they can bring you know, difficulties with them. Um, you know, if, for example, uh, you look at um, gene therapy for severe combined immune deficiency, yep. which has been uh, used for about 15 years now in, a, in an experimental, in a hospital-based setting, right. it's given to babies at birth, you know, shortly after birth, as soon as diagnosis, and then they are no longer Effective. children with yeah. severe combined immune deficiency. They're just children. And, you know, but you don't know that that's going to be the case at the point at which you give them the therapy. Right. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have right. to take a degree of trust, but equally, um, you know, you need to be able to um, avoid just simply frittering away scarce right. resources. Track that progress, but, yeah. trust but yeah. verify, I suppose, yeah. is the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think we need to uh, be more creative in ways in which we we add value or determine the right. added value. Um, and we need to break out of the kind of short-term uh, approach that, uh, that dominates the, the discussion today. Right. And also, I think we need to um, try and find ways of enabling companies uh, to take a, a broader societal perspective as well as a short-term financial one. And the only reason that companies are allowed to uh, develop uh, therapies, which are often pretty toxic right. uh, in, if, if they're used in the wrong way, and put these therapies into our bodies is because we have a, a societal contract, a social contract, uh, and a regulatory framework that gives patients and families confidence that these things have been that these tested, things have been yeah. properly tested and, and evaluated, and the re ultimately the funding to allow that to happen, to allow the the, the R and D uh, to happen, to allow the licensing process, to allow for the return on investment comes from comes from you and me comes right. from the taxes we pay that go into the health service that the health service then use to make resource allocation decisions and we as individuals as citizens ultimately need to be confident that although you can't have everything you want the system is geared up in such a way that you are likely to be able to get what you need when there is something there that works right. and would benefit you. So I think we need to kind of re restructure the conversation about the relationship between the bottom line in financial terms and the bottom line in societal terms. Because let's face it, you know, as we get older, the chances of us acquiring a, a serious medical condition increase. Right. And I don't know about you, but I would quite like when it happens to me for there to be, A, an effective intervention that will address the problem, uh, and B, that it will be 
available to me in a timely way such that I'm likely to be able to get it and right. benefit from it. So it's in all our interests, whether we have a, a, a rare genetic condition that's apparent from birth or a later onset condition, you know, the things that affect us all as we get older, that we find a way of sustaining uh, investment, of continuing to produce innovative therapies that address real patient needs uh, in, a, in a sustainable and affordable way. And as we get uh, the, you know, our aging population with increasing comorbidities, you know, the, the need to find a way of doing that without excluding those people who do depend on highly expensive, innovative right. interventions for small populations from the process is, is ever more urgent. Yeah, and, and I think you, you also mentioned that, that actually making sure we're in, we're in tune with the real problems of the patient and yeah. what we're solving. And, and I feel like there's a, the term real-world evidence or patient-generated health data is, is often used. And, mm. and I, I feel like this is a crucial part of this equation, which is, yeah. like you say, you, you administer a therapy at one point, but I'd really like to know for the course of that patient's life or for you know, a 10-year period, how, how well is it actually working? And are there things that it's not, or are there people that it's not working on, or are there things that it's not solving yeah. that we could do? And I, and I feel like there's an opportunity to actually, it, we have digital technologies, we have a way for patients to stay connected that actually gathering some of this information, integrating it with the more traditional yeah. healthcare system and the genetic testing data that we've talked about is, uh, you know, maybe a way that we can start to get a, a feedback loop on are these expensive therapies working? Who are they working for? And, and yeah. how can we improve? Yes. I mean, unlike possibly any other sector of the healthcare communities, patients and families have absolutely no interest in therapies that don't work. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the NHS still spends a large amount of money doing things that have no. Uh, no clinical benefit, but right. because of the inertia of the system, right. things just and keep they just rolling around. In some cases, well, quite right. yes, yeah. they don't have the the evidence. But um, so it's important, I think, to make sure that uh, the the experience, the insights of patients and families are reliably captured and used to alter clinical practice. You know, if if a drug's not going to work for you, then don't take it. Right. You know, but you need to know as a patient that the drug doesn't work for you, not that it's too expensive or the system has failed to identify that you would be one who would benefit or, or all these, these other things. So there's a question of confidence and question of engagement. But I think there's also, you know, we all know it doesn't matter whether you've got a cold or whether you've got a life-limiting disease. There are some aspects of that illness that really spoil your day and some things you can live you with, can live with right? you know they're a nuisance and you wish they weren't there but you can get on with life yeah. um, so if someone is going to develop uh, a therapy that might cost six or seven figures per patient to, to deliver it really is important to make sure that it will address the things that spoil your day right. rather than the things that you can live with uh, a, because that way you're more likely to 
to get uh, get it through the the regulatory process through the health technology uh, assessment that, that that's there and, and b because it will actually make the the health gain that patients and families are looking for much more achievable right you know we 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 all want a miracle bullet that will cure the problem take it away forever and just render us uh, healthy and whole again but we know that that's unlikely to happen so you know therapies should be deliberately targeted on those areas which will make the biggest difference right so a couple of blue skies questions before mm. we finish off here I'm just wondering if you have any if you're willing to make any predictions for the next decade so sitting here in 2019 and 2029 or 2030 how how do you think the way we'll diagnose and treat rare conditions will change uh, <laughs> now this is the uh, no pressure I'll, <laughs> no pressure there I'll check in in 10 years and see how it fares yes yes who was it who said prediction is difficult especially when it's about the future yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I may be uh, well off off being here in fact I almost certainly will be but I, I, I think um, looking ahead we will undoubtedly see um, uh, a significant advance in our ability to understand and diagnose diseases at the molecular level um, I mean it, it shouldn't be underestimated the uniqueness of the the situation we are in today in, in in that respect you know if you think about it homo sapiens has been uh around as a species for something like two hundred thousand years and it's only in certainly in 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 our lifetime that we have had the opportunity to understand at the molecular level the processes that that go wrong right uh, and that result in in life-limiting diseases so having that in that the opportunity to have that insight because once you understand at the molecular level you can start thinking about changing things about how to alter the machinery you can get into things and and make a difference so that is a unique opportunity that as people alive today uh, has been denied to all of our forebears right. Uh, right back to the as I say to the the earliest emergence of uh, of Homo sapiens at the edge of the old divide gorge in the Rift Valley in Africa so I think the challenge for us is to capitalize on that knowledge in ways that benefit humanity right. you know we, we we see um unanticipated consequences you know the the uh, emergence of over-the-counter genetic testing um, is without as it were a proper framework of yeah. information around it uh, and support for those people who uh, um, who choose to go down that route uh, can potentially have quite devastating consequences uh, you know there have been uh, a number of stories recently in the press about people who who went down the the over-the-counter genetic testing route uh, and found that 
you know, they were their, their, their social parent was not their biological yeah. parent, and we uh, with devastating consequences for the family. So, you know, there are threats, there are challenges. Right. The 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 threat of, uh, as it were, unauthorized access to sensitive genetic information uh, needs to be guarded against and protected. Um, you cannot eliminate the risk of that happening. But we do need a, a regulatory framework that says, if you get unauthorized access to my data uh, and you use it for a purpose which is illicit, then you will get thoroughly kicked in such a way right. that you will not be able to do it again. Yeah. Uh, so we need to protect the the consequences of uh, protect against the consequences of abuse. You know, you can never make a completely secure system that is unhackable, but you need to make the opportunities to benefit from illicit use uh, as, unattractive as unattractive as you as possibly possible, can. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. looking to the future, I think we will need to see uh, a greater imagination in the way in which we, uh, we regulate uh, and uh, permit uses of, of our sensitive information We'll need to see uh, in more imaginative thinking about how we take that new, those new opportunities and turn them into health gain for people living under currently uh, awful circumstances. And although we've made huge progress in the last 20 years, there's still an awful long way to go. I mean, we've come, if we've come, say, 20 miles on a journey, we don't know if we're on a journey of, of 30 miles or 1,000 miles. Yeah. You know, uh, you, we, we still have got an awful lot of diseases which we cannot reliably diagnose, which we don't understand, which we can't do more than palliate the symptoms of while, while nature takes its course. So, you know, there's a huge lot still to be done. Uh, and I think the, I don't think the challenge is um, un, unachievable, but there needs to be a sustained commitment to pursuing the goal, which I think is a is is a a real one and a and a worthwhile one, but also in the context of the other challenges we 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 face, you know the 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 threat of pandemics that with uh, that are untreatable with our current level of antimicrobials you know the impact of climate change uh, causing widespread social disruption and if that happens of course it will be people who are dependent on highly expensive innovative interventions who will be uniquely vulnerable right yeah well i think that's a uh that's a that's a probably a good place to wrap it up. I had one more question, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on. If you were starting your career all over again today and you had to pick an area to focus on, what would it be? Uh, well, that working in, in, in this area of, uh, at the edge of, um, the edge of knowledge, um, where you are, um, seeing the possibilities of new ways of of addressing real existential threats uh, is something which I think you know if 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 I was starting out now or if you know I I was advising anybody right. uh, as to well what career do you want to get to to follow 
uh, I think look for an area where you think you can make a difference. Uh, I mean, for me, I've always been interested in, in, in healthcare, in the development of uh, socially just responses to uh, unmet Right. medical and uh, medical needs it, it would be a tragedy if the work that has gone on uh, in in genomics in genomic medicine uh, were to evolve into medicine for the rich not yeah, medicine absolutely. for everybody so i mean i think uh, you know whether it's in the the policy the advocacy field or whether it's in the the hands-on wet biology of 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 doing the research and the development i i think I, I would look for something where I where I thought I could make a difference, um, but frankly, you very rarely have that opportunity, you know, right. that insight as to where things are going to go. When I started with Genetic Alliance, um, you know, over a quarter of a century ago, uh, genetics was this obscure corner of the right, health right. field, and what interested me was the fact that it. Had so there was, it had potential, yeah. but, but essentially, I, I was like the person who was sitting on top of the volcano when it erupted. Right. <laughs> you know, we knew there was a potential volcano there, but we didn't know when it would go off. Right. Um, so, you know, I was, I was lucky in, in, in that sense that I was in the right place in the right time to hopefully have made some sort of a difference in some very small way. I think, you know, look for where you think you have the chance and and go for it. Great. You know, there are always there are always reasons not to do something, you know. But find what really find motivates what, you. Find right? how it find find what turns you on, what gets yeah. you out of bed in the morning. Well and, and like you I mean, you, you say you were lucky sitting on sitting on the volcano, but equally it sounds like some of the work at Genetic Alliance kind of can precipitate change in a way, right? You're not, uh, you do want to ride, you know, you, you, you're subject to the broad changes of society, but equally you can put yourself in a position where you say, actually, we can make a difference as a group on yeah. something that's really important and, and, you know, to each of us in our small way can kind of yeah. push towards the direction. If you think genetics has promise or you think, genome editing is the future then you know then you can actually be one of the people who contributes to that change yeah but always remember it's a collaborative yep. venture um you can do so much more if you work together than if you you know you go head to head i, I often think um this we're like it, it's like a dance troupe mm. you know in a dance troupe everybody has got a different role but everybody knows what everybody else's role is and they work together and the result is a harmonious and aesthetically pleasing outcome. Similarly in, in, in healthcare, you know, we all have got different roles, but if we work together, then the outcome will be hopefully aesthetic Far and harmonious, but it will certainly produce greater benefits for a larger number of people than if we're at each other's throats and trying to keep our knowledge to ourselves well great i think that's a perfect way to close off uh, hopefully some of the knowledge here today will spur some people to change what they do or inspire them a little bit so thanks very much we really appreciate all your 
um, candid thoughts and, mm. and experience in patient-centric research and support in rare disease. Well, thank you for inviting me. Great. Thank you all for listening to the podcast. As always, you can send us any feedback, including questions you have or other guests you'd like to see on the show or anything else that's on your mind to podcast at sonogenetics.com. If you like the podcast, we'd really love it if you could share it with a friend and leave us a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. And finally, feel free to visit our website, sonogenetics.com, for more information or blog posts uh, or some of the research projects we're running right now. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.